Omajana Trimananda Shajana Jana Salakaya Chakshun Nalitanyena Tasmai Shri Namaha Good evening everyone. We will continue discussing Srila Jiva Goswami's Bhagavat Sandarbha Anacheda 23, which was extremely long. And this uh, Anacheda deals with the fact that threefold Maya, threefold being the threefold three enfolded modes of material nature which are which subjugate our existence within the material world. So this last part of the Anocheta, in this section, Srila Jiva Goswami is going to offer an alternative meaning to the main verse that he used as his Praman for the Anocheta. So let's go back to that main verse. It's from the first canto, seventh chapter. The verse itself you are directly the original person, the Supreme Lord, beyond the material energy. By dint of your conscious potency, you have cast away the effects of Maya and are always situated in your own self, the state of absolute unity. That's Arjuna praying to Krishna. So this alternative reading Jiva Goswami gives for the verse, in other words, he's given you know, a specific definition and we've discussed that. This other alternative meaning is to emphasize the fact that dependent Maya, which is a Shakti of his, has no entrance into the spiritual realm. This kind of touches on the ending of our last discussion where we talked about this misconception uh, that someone could fall from the spiritual realm. If Maya can't enter there, then how could one be influenced in such a way as to fall down with the material existence? How, would they, how is that possible? Let's go over this alternative reading. Although the existence of Maya is denied in Vaikuntha, the existence there of the internal energy is confirmed in this verse. You are always situated in the state of absolute unity. This is a paraphrasing, a different translation, so to speak, of Arjuna's verse. So you are always situated in a state of absolute unity, Kaivalya, which is known as liberation and appears as Vaikuntha, your own essential part. And what have you done to be thus situated? You showed disdain for Maya, even though it is already situated far away. Through your chit potency which exists so majestically in Vaikuntha. So this doctrine of Maya's absence in Vaikuntha is also confirmed by Sri Sukadev. So now Jiva Goswami provides additional praman that Maya has no entrance, the external energy has no entrance into the internal energy. Both come from one source but they don't mix and we've already earlier in the Bhagavat Sandarbha, Jiva Goswami's established that although the Lord has unlimited potencies, sometimes they're in opposition to one another. They can be opposed to one another. So the verse from the second canto, Sukadev is speaking, in that personal abode of the Lord, the material gunas of Thomas and Rajas do not exist nor does sattva, in which there is an admixture of these. 
just to emphasize the point that there is a pseudo-sattva, a pure sattva, that is unmixed with Rajas and Thomas. But that doesn't exist in the material realm. So in the spiritual realm, that mixed sattva also does not go there. In the material realm, there's no pure sattva. And in the spiritual realm, there's no mixed sattva. Nor is there any influence of time, what to speak of Maya. The residents there are worshipable by both devas and asuras. This last Anucheta is making a few points. Krishna's energies are real. Maya exists. And it's not false. It's not like liberation entails, as the Advaitins believe, waking up from Maya and realizing you were never in Maya because Maya wasn't really there. That's a misconception on their part. It is a real energy. Otherwise, how could it influence us in, in the way that it does? If it was not real, then one would think that it would have no real influence. Our experience is just the opposite. It does have a real influence. We do experience things in life. Sometimes they're pleasurable, sometimes they're painful. Sometimes they're extremely painful. And we do experience birth and death. If it was all just an illusion, a dream, a myth, then you could dissipate it in, a, in an instant. Why would there be the need for sadhana? Why would you need to work at dispelling an illusion once you recognize it for what it is? It would be like waking up in the morning. You're in the middle of a dream, but then there's some noise or, or your body is ready to wake up and the dream just flutters away and here you are ready for another day. So you're aware of the fact that it's, you're, you're awake. So once you became aware that Maya didn't exist, then Maya would just end. But we don't see that that's the case. That's not our experience. Maya persists, even though we may have knowledge that it's an illusion. So although some of these energies of Bhagavan oppose one another, to him they exist in harmony. There's no disharmony from his viewpoint. It's all good. And we see also in the sadhus, who are no longer influenced by the external potency in a negative way, they see it as all good. There's no bad here. Well, as Bhaktivinod said at one point, he saw his home turn into Vaikuntha. That's spiritual consciousness. That's the state of walking samadhi that the sadhu experiences regularly. That's what we're striving for, to be constantly in a state of divine rapture, to be completely thrilled at the wonder of Krishna being everywhere, at his energies everywhere that even we may not see him personally, we know this is his energy and he's behind it. And it's, it's all his. And recognizing him as the proprietor every, of everything, then we can be enthused at every moment. Krishna wants that. What's he say about devotional service in the Bhagavad Gita? This is 
everlasting and joyfully performed. So whatever progress you've made, it's not going away. You may have a temporary lapse in judgment. That's another thing. It may appear to go far away, but Krishna hasn't forgot. Krishna's ready to, to rectify and move forward. Generally, we see that if there's any hang-ups or impediment to our progress, we're the ones that are putting them there. We're the ones that are taking an odd mental hang-up and making it into a huge hurdle that we can't cross. Like a pole vaulter, we think we can never go that high and get over it. Christians there, get over it. <laughs> it's, just, it's just, it's in your mind. So that ends our discussion of the 23rd Anucheta. And now we're going to come to a place in the Bhagavat Sandarbha where the remainder of the Bhagavat Sandarbha will deal with his internal potency. So I wanted to do a quick recap of what Jiva Goswami began the Sandarbha with, and then starting with the 24th through the end of the uh, Bhagavat Sandarbha, Jiva is going to concentrate just, just on the Lord's internal energies, Bhagavan's internal energies. So how did we get here? He started out with his main praman being those different viewpoints of that non-dual absolute using Vedanti Tat Tattva Vidas Tattva Miyaj Janamadvayam Brahmeti Paramatmeti Bhagavan Iti Sabjate. Then he pointed out the distinction between Brahman and Bhagavan, the two different conceptions. And he didn't go into detail with Paramatma. He's going to do that in the next Sandarbha. He's going to devote a whole Sandarbha. And again, remember, when we look at these divisions, Tattva Sandarbha, Bhagavat Sandarbha, Paramatma Sandarbha, the Krishna Sandarbha, Bhakti Sandarbha, Preeti Sandarbha, it's all one big work. In this Sandarbha, the Bhagavat Sandarbha, he deals with the nature of Paramatma because Paramatma is part of Bhagavan's nature. And then he's going to hone in a little bit of that bit on that in the next Sandarbha. Then he discusses the distinction between Brahman and Bhagavan, telling us that Paramatma is included in Bhagavan. Then the fact that Bhagavan is is the qualified absolute. He has qualities, whereas the Brahman conception of the absolute is seeing the absolute as devoid of specific qualities. It's that all-encompassing, all-pervasive spiritual energy. Then he, we went over an Anucheta where he says that Bhagavan is Narayan, and he gave evidence to that point. Then we got into a little bit of what's required on our part to realize Brahman. What are the qualifications of the worshiper of Brahman? in order to attain the goal of Brahman realization. And the qualification was what? It was the verse right after the Vedanti Tat verse. 
and what's required is sadhana to Bhagavan. Even though you're fixed on Brahman realization, you are able to actualize that realization through sadhana to, to Bhagavan. There has to be a pinch. And as we pointed out, it's, it's interesting from the Vaishnava's viewpoint, it's like Krishna's giving you one last chance. And a lot of devotees, we can see from the Bhagavatam, take advantage of that. The speaker of the Bhagavatam himself, the Kamaras, they were firmly situated in Brahman realization. They were Jivan Mukta. But still, in doing the sadhana of bhakti, they were pulled in. So devotion is the means to Bhagavan realization also. And then it was pointed out that the specific manifestation of Bhagavan that one attains is based upon the mood of the devotee. And the mood of the devotee is coming from the mood of the guru, the teacher. Then we had a nice example of what's it like to realize Bhagavan. And we saw what Brahma's realization was at the beginning of the creation. What he actually experienced. We were given a, a glimpse, not the whole picture, but enough of the picture to arouse some interest. Then uh, Anucheta dealing with the fact that the characteristics of Bhagavan are inherent and that is going to be developed even more. So that was developed. This was about, we're up to the 10th Anucheta. We come up to the 12th Anucheta, the point that even though he has these inherent potencies, they can conflict with each other. And they sometimes do. And that was explained in three Anuchetas. And that these potencies are inconceivable. We, from our viewpoint, can't even begin to comprehend how much potency the Supreme Lord has. We can infer that he must have a lot because we can see how much energy is within this material realm that we have some direct experience of. And then it was pointed out that some of his potencies are conscious, some are inert. Talking about the inert potencies, Maya was discussed, and the fact that Maya has two divisions, Jiva Maya and Guna Maya. And we were introduced to those concepts. And then the fact that Maya itself, that energy itself, is coming from the Lord's internal potency. Everything's coming from Him, His internal energy. The Jiva is dependent on Bhagavan for its, its power of cognition. Maya is under Bhagavan's control. Maya is activated by Bhagavan. And it really exists. This brings us to the 24th Anucheda. The qualities of Bhagavan are intrinsic to his nature. So what's the Sambandha? What's the lesson that's going to be provided to us in this 24th Anucheda? By concluding that all of Bhagavan's qualities and shuts belong to his essential nature, his internal energy will be explained further from here through the end of this Sandarbha. His various qualities, all, all aspects of his internal energy, 
are therefore natural. This will be the subject of Anuchetas 24 through 28. So we're starting on 24. And the thing is, these are natural to him. They're not an artificial imposition. These are his natural characteristics. These potencies are part of, of his very self. So Jiva begins um, bringing this point home by quoting a verse from the Srimad Bhagavatam, from the prayers of the personified Vedas. 87th chapter of the 10th canto. Because the jiva lies alongside ignorance through the influence of maya and delighting in her qualities takes a suitable form for enjoying them, her qualities, he loses all good fortune and suffers death. You, on the other hand, reject maya. These are prayers to the Supreme Lord. So the personified mayors are, say, are talking, telling the Lord, you, on the other hand, we know about you. <laughs> you reject Maya. Like a serpent its skin. And filled with your own opulences are exalted in your own glory. Equipped with the eight paranormal powers and immeasurable opulences. This connection is made here you reject Maya as a serpent its skin. It's it's a natural occurrence. There's no real connection there. When the serpent rejects its skin, it's it has no use for it. You can't say that the skin was not the product of the serpent. It was. But when he slithers out of it, then although made by him, he has no further connection with it. So that's one of the points that the personified Vedas are making here. And, of course, they're making the, the point that what's the position of the jiva? The jiva is lying down with Maya and is very happy and content. And that happiness and content leads to all of the good fortune going away and to death, the miscon misconception of, of death. Jiva Goswami goes on to give us the commentary of Sridhar Swami on this verse. Sridhar Swami comments, Sa, he, here refers to the living being. Of course, they're giving us the definition of the various Sanskrit terms in the sloka. Yat means yasmat because... The first use of the word Aja refers to Maya, by whose influence the living being lies alongside her, meaning that he embraces ignorance, avidya. Then, as the phrase delighting in her gunas, indulging the body and senses, or identifying himself with them, indicates the jiva subsequently takes a corresponding form Sarupata. He acquires material qualities. He loses good fortune, meaning that his real qualities, such as bliss, are covered and he suffers death. He falls into the cycle of birth and death. You, on the other hand, reject her, Maya. Sridhar Swami goes on. If Bhagavan should object, how can I reject her? 
who is situated within me? The Shrutis answer, like a serpent at skin. The sense is this. The snake does not much value its skin, even though part of its body. Similarly, you are indifferent to Maya, just as the owner of eternally blissful, transcendental, day news, wish-fulfilling cows, is indifferent to an insignificant goat. <laughs> so if you have a herd of Kamadehus, which are whatever you want, this cow will give you. Just go up and make a request. They're a wish-fulfilling cow. Imagine having one. That's all we'd need. And we would have the community... We could wish for more brahmacharis. We could wish for nice wives for those that want to get married. We could wish for cottages. We could wish for unlimited wealth to build all the buildings we want and the temple. So Gauratamadava would have there just about one cow. Okay, so imagine if you had a whole herd. So if you had that at your disposal, really, of what value would be an insignificant goat that simply what? Makes some noise and eats refuse. I guess it's good for cleaning the woods, but with a common day, you could just wish the woods were all cleared. So why is that? Because you are eternally associated with complete opulence. In your glory means in your supreme godhood, which is filled with eight paranormal potencies like anima, atomization. You're exalted means you are worshipped and you are situated. How are you situated? In immeasurable opulence. Unlike in any other, your eight types of opulences are not limited by time and place. Unlike in any other. In other words, these siddhas to those that practice within the material realm to acquire these siddhas, they can come and they can go. These yogis sometimes can fall down. They can get these opulences and have the siddha, but then they can go throughout the universe and maybe they'll be in some way deterred from the very austerities that allow them to have the siddha in the first place. But not Krishna. He's never going to lose any of them, and he has them in completion beyond any comprehension. They're immeasurable in him their potency. Being completely intrinsic to yourself, here ends Sridhar Swami's comments. And also, as a reinforcing praman, Jiva points out that Krishna personally informed an Uddhava from the 11th canto, Dear Uddhava, Gentle Uddhava, these eight paranormal powers are inherent in me. Well, Jiva just can't leave it there. He has to go on. And he gives another praman uh, regarding these opulences that are inherent in the Supreme. And he quotes Prahlad Maharaj. It's from the seventh canto. The Supreme Lord, he's in his teacher mode. The teacher stepped out and he's taken the podium. <laughs> the Supreme Lord, who is the personification of his own bliss and is realized through his divinity, is hidden by the veil of external energy which creates the world by these gunas. What Sridhar say about this? Jiva goes on. Let me quote Sridhar here. 
So we can get the right purport to this verse also. Should our Swami comments here, if the Supreme Lord alone exists everywhere, then qualities like omniscience should be available everywhere, shouldn't they? The verse answers this objection as follows. It is not so because he has concealed his divinity by Maya. Yeah, he is everywhere. He is in the pillar, but you can't see him. Maya is doing her job. The veil of Maya is covering you because you don't want to see him everywhere. If you did want to see him everywhere, you would accept and fall at the feet of a guru and take to the practice of sadhana bhakti so that you could raise your consciousness to there would be nothing you could see except for Krishna. That's the key to understanding spiritual life. What does Krishna say at the very beginning of the Bhagavatam? What is Maya? Maya is not seeing me everywhere. The whole purpose is to see me in everything. If you don't see me everywhere and in everything, then you're an illusion. Self-realization itself means to see Krishna everywhere. By qualifying Maya with the adjective guna-sarga, in the form of the three gunas, it is disclosed that his opulence, like his swarup, is transcendental to Maya. One more praman to may bring the point home. There is a red, black, and white she-goat that produces offspring all of the same nature as herself. There was one ram, Jiva, who is captivated and enjoys her, but another, Paramatma, who abandons this she-goat as already enjoyed. Swetas Vitara Upanishad. The meaning of the sutra is... The jiva is enjoying the three modes of material nature. But the paramatma has is rejected her because she's already been enjoyed. There's nothing there. Commentary. Different wisdom schools have propagated different doctrines attempting to accommodate empirical duality within the transcendent absolute non-dual truth. These wisdom schools fall into two categories. So to elaborate on the first, different schools of thought have put forth different ideas, doctrines, trying to accommodate the dualities that we see in the material world, empiric duality, within the concept of the transcendent non-dual truth. So they're trying to accommodate this Shastric statement, Vedanti tat tatvavidas tatvamyaj janam advayam, this non-dual spiritual substance, this consciousness, this awareness, this cognition of existence, we know it has to be one, there has to be one central existence, one central conscious awareness. We know that we're aware, but our awareness is within this empiric realm through sense perception. So the, these transcendentalists know there's something beyond the dualities of their sense perception. They're aware of this, but they have to come up with different ideas in order to accommodate how can this spiritual conscious reality 
coexist and be harmonized with what we directly experience through our senses within the material realm. So now, imagine trying to come up with a solution to this. If, you're, if you are enlightened enough to arrive at this conclusion, and how would we arrive at this conclusion? By removing ourselves from the modes of passion and ignorance and contemplating our situation. So these great saints and sages, these transcendentalists, they see, okay, so I can remove myself. Practically speaking, it's possible. I can see it. In, in practice, through disciplined life, I can diminish my suffering they experience. This is empiric input to them. And in decreasing their personal suffering by refusing to engage according to simply the, the dictates of the senses, they say, well, let me take charge of the senses and not let the senses continue to have charge of me. They come to this level of realization and they take to a discipline whereby they can extract themselves from karmic reaction. And they can go very far in this through just austerities and contemplation and yoga and gradually they, they develop different doctrines, different theories. They take it as far as they can. How far can they take it? What do they have? They only have their empiric input and they can raise themselves to the topmost as far as possible, sattvagun, independent of passion and ignorance, but they can't get even to pure, pure sattvagun. So they're limited. So jivas, what's coming out here is, well, let's look at what is there in the world of thought from this level of inquiry into the nature of the self. So he says these wisdom schools have their various doctrines and they fall into two broad categories. One is non-theistic Vedanta. The absolute truth is oneness only. So one group of transcendentalists take on this Vedantic thought. Here again, in order to even get there, this word is there, Vedantic. What's that mean? Subdabrahman something's coming down. If they're accepting the Vedas, where are the Vedas coming from? If this non-dual absolute has no qualities, one quality would be knowledge, but yet you are accepting the Vedas as descending knowledge from what? From one that can't think, that can't see, that can't feel, that has no abilities? But here you have Vedic knowledge. How did the unqualified give you qualified knowledge? It's a bit of a problem. The other school, the other broad category of thinking is theistic Vedanta. Theistic accepts that the non-dual absolute encompasses all potencies, 
including personhood and distinction. So Sankaracharya's Mayavad interpretation of Advaitavad is absolute reality as undifferentiated, all-pervading, and devoid of energy, quality, and personhood. There it is, wrapped up right in one little phrase. If you remember that, you'll know Mayavad philosophy. Sankaracharya's Mayavad interpretation of Advaitavad is absolute reality. The supreme, non-dual absolute is undifferentiated. So it's not based on any Shastra. No, they accept the they accept the Upanishads. They quote the Upanishads. Sankaracharya gave his interpretation to the to the Vedanta Sutra. He wrote his own interpretation. Yes, they accept. So how does that fit in with the you know quality is undifferentiated, like you were just saying? It's a total contradiction. In my opinion, it's a contradiction, but I guarantee you they have their arguments and they'll take you to task on the fact that we can use Vedanta to, it's okay, we can use it, even though it, we don't know where it came from and it definitely didn't come from the absolute, but then again, it's not subject to the modes of material nature, but they'll have their arguments. They will quote the Upanishads to support, you know, Tatwamasi, you are that, you are that. We have... And as much conviction. And as much, con- which gives them as much conviction as mm-hmm. you have. All the Back to the simple definition. Learn it. It's easy. Undifferentiated. The supreme absolute is undifferentiated. It's all-pervading, undifferentiated, and devoid of personhood, which naturally entails devoid of potencies. Then we have the the theistic, the other side, the theistic Vedantins, which includes the Vaishnavas, who mainly adhere to five philosophies, but their Ramanuja's approach to Vedanta, Madhvacharya's, Nimbarka's, which is from the Kumar, Sampradaya, Vallabhacharya, and Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's. And his conception uh, is that of a chinta beta beta tattva. A tattva which says that the supreme absolute can have both the position of being non-dual, supreme personality, but can also have variegated potencies that even contradict each other. Simultaneously one and different in one inconceivably simultaneously one and different. So I'll stop there this evening. Anything else? Thank you for your association. Hare Krishna.